people in the preschool didn't know our story. They didn't, you know, and they would call me mom or, to, you know, say to the kids, your mom's here or... And so one day I just said to Sean, I said, what do you want me to do when people call me your mom? And he said, um, sorry, this always gets me. He said, tell them um, our old mommy's in heaven and you're our new mom. And that was how he made sense of it in his head, you know, that he had old and then to this day they call Maria old mommy um and um and so I mean that little child set that framework then which helped me enormously welcome to and then everything changed a podcast about the pivotal moments in life and decisions that define us I'm your host Ronit Plank Today, my guest is Jacqueline Genovese. She is also my friend. <laughs> Welcome, Jacqueline. Thanks, Ronit. I'm really thrilled to be here, and I'm so proud of you for your podcast and now your newsletter and your book. You're amazing. Aww. Oh, thank you. You're amazing. And I mean, you are really amazing. And I think right before we started recording, you said that you have students who will approach you and ask how they can do what you do. And you said, it's a weird thing that you do. And so I think, can you, in your own words, just explain it, what is your elevator pitch for what you do? Well, my work is in the medical humanities and it's at the intersection of military and medicine, which seems like a strange thing, but basically um, on the medical side, what we do is help medical students and physicians basically hold on to their humanity as they go through what can often be a very inhumane process, either medical training, uh, medical education, or as we're seeing today, the front lines of the pandemic. And with on the military side, there are many similarities between mil military and medicine hierarchy, life and death situations. Um, minority of the population in both sets, it's less than 1% of the entire population. And also there is a very distinct uh, masculine culture of, mm -hmm. um, you know, um, emotion is a weakness, um, talking about the issues is not uh, promoted. And so in both areas, our program helps both physicians and veterans write and process um, some of the more challenging experiences that they've had. Mm -hmm. And was this program, like where, where, where and when was the inception of this program? Well, the Stanford program started, gosh, 15 years ago as a, um, in the, the faculty director is Dr. Audrey Schaefer. She's an anesthesiologist at the um, Palo Alto VA and she's also a poet and a writer. And she recognized a need for this, um, you know, a while ago. So she actually started this in her living room where mm -hmm. she had medical students come, read their creative writing, uh, sing, perform. And that little seed has really grown into this amazing, um, Stanford's mascot is a tree, so I will say tree. Um, <laughs> That's very good branding, yeah. Jacqueline. <laughs> um, for the program as it stands today, which is, um, as 
I was, she was able to hire me as a full-time executive director and I was able to hire a part-time program coordinator and we have a part-time lecturer um, for creative writing and storytelling and a, a series of affiliated faculty. So the, the programming and the academic offerings have really grown um, over the last five years and the beauty of Dr. Schaefer working at the VA, she too has a special place in her heart for veterans. So when I got to Stanford, I told her I would love to create a war literature and writing class for the military affiliated students at Stanford. And mm-hmm. um, she gave me her blessing and I was able to write a grant to get money because I like to feed my students and also yeah. <laughs> buy their supplies because mm-hmm. particularly veterans coming in are often at a different financial situation than most of the other students. And from your, you know, you've been there for how long now in this capacity? Seven years. It's wow. hard to believe. Yes. yes. And and the people that come in, the veterans that come in, how many of them would you say had experience writing prior to your class or your lecture? Well, here is the amazing thing about military-affiliated students. They have to be expert communicators, particularly in combat, right? Because if there's a miscommunication or misunderstanding, people's lives are on the line. So I am always so impressed and um, amazed at how great they write, even though they think that they're not writers and they think that they're not good writers. And so we do timed writing um, prompts in class and also a final assignment. And two of my students have been published in outside Mm -hmm. um, publications. And my lofty goal would be at the end of each class to actually produce a publication um, with everybody's writing. But so I would say for them, they don't think they have the writing. And also I make it, it's not a requirement that's in the um, class description, no previous writing experience necessary. Um, so I would say, if anything, they don't know how good they are mm-hmm. in terms of that. And how how is that experience for you when, when you're listening to what they have to write and when you're listening to the experiences they share? You, you yourself are a writer, um, and you, you have a lot of different experiences, which we're going to get into, but how is it to be helming a class where what they're writing about can be really complicated and difficult? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, The class guidelines are confidentiality, collegiality, compassion, and cussing is okay. Those are my (laughs) guidelines. And so the idea that to get students comfortable sharing some of the the more difficult situations, um, there's that basis of trust and understanding. And the idea too, especially with um, timed writing, you know, punctuation doesn't matter, spelling doesn't matter, just get the thoughts out on the paper. And it's just a really freeing exercise and once students start to share then they you know they trust each other they trust the process and and I I make them handwrite because you know the physiology of handwriting is different in terms of how your brain is engaged than typing in a keyboard Mm -hmm. and they kind of make fun of me um, but they do it (laughs) (laughs) but and when we meet in person I would provide them an actual journal um, 
and pen to, to do that with. But in terms of that, the writing, what we do in class is, is a response, um, typically like in a writing workshop, you know, what works well, um, what you want to hear more of. And then in the longer assignments is when I'm able to give more editorial feedback and some ideas for them if they want to take the piece further. Um, so it's really just a, an amazing learning, co- collective learning experience for all of us because mm-hmm. for me in particular, um, I am not a veteran. So a lot of times I am learning about a military process or and they're, they're super great at explaining everything to me in terms of, especially if it's heavy on acronyms. So it's really a mutual, um, mutually learning experience. And I typically have students from different services, which is also so much fun because they just rib each other constantly. Um, <laughs> well, I was just going to ask you, I was going to say, being, uh, you know, watching this workshop experience, this type of uh, platform there versus being in a writing workshop for let's say a whole bunch of lay you know lay people who are writers what is the biggest difference in the feedback they give each other and the type of interactions they have is there a real big difference between a military writing group and a non-military writing group well I would say yes in in the sense that this particular writing group is really not so much about the writing itself. I, I mean, it is, but it's about the sharing of the experience. And even if they're from d- different services, they have similar, um, you know, either positive or negative experiences. And we do humor too. We always ha- um, have, because that's one thing they, they say they miss um, the sense of humor in the military, which can be dark, but it can also be hilarious. And um, so it's really more about um, creating community through the sharing of the stories as opposed to like what we have gone through with a workshop really honing in on the writing itself. I mean, that does come mm-hmm. later, more individually, but mm-hmm. in, and also just to get people um, used to writing and used to writing in a timed manner and being comfortable mm-hmm. with that. Because my my um, hope and dream for for them and the medical students and the doctors is for them to have a daily habit of journaling or writing or even just turning to um, pen and paper or the keyboard when they need to process something Mm -hmm. particularly difficult. Mm -hmm. Is it ever hard for you to to be a witness to some of the stories and the conversations? Well, it, it, I hear some really difficult things, particularly from the veterans, but I think, I mean, part of the reason I got into this work, one of my friend's sons had done three tours in Afghanistan, and then he came home and committed suicide. And so as I was looking into that, that whole, the whole issue um, of military suicide, and I'm thinking about these young men, and they're my son's ages, and so I think for me, because, and they all tell me I put off a mom vibe, so I think for me, um, I'm, I'm more there to be present for them and then um, listening as a, as, I mean, I'm more as a mom thinking, oh my gosh, you know, 
this is someone's child who went through this experience. So in the moment, um, I'm supportive and may ask a few questions or um, validate their experience and validate the fact that what they went through was horrific. And there's, you know, sometimes palpable relief in that and being able to just have them say what happened and then have people agree. Yeah, that was, Mm -hmm. that was horrible. Mm -hmm. Maybe it's a little like bearing witness. Yes, absolutely. But it's a, it's a very, um, and not to be super spiritual, but it's, it's, it is, I feel like um, I'm, I'm trying to be in service of something greater toward healing. Mm-hmm. And you said that you weren't in the military yourself. So beyond your friend whose son committed suicide after the three tours in Afghanistan, what else brought you to working with veterans? Well, my father was actually a Navy veteran during the Korean War, and he went to college on the GI Bill. And um, I had aspirations of going to the Naval Academy because it was free. And um, (laughs) not only free, but they they pay you per month, and then the students typically have enough money to buy a new car when they graduate. So when I was in high school, that was very appealing. Um, But then when I went for my physical, my medical physical, they found uh, two small things that are wrong with my heart. So that kept me out of the Naval Academy. So um, I did have an interest in that early on. And my sister joined the Navy. And she was in the Navy and did anti-submarine warfare and went went all over the world. So I um, obviously, I mean, I wouldn't say I grew up in a military family, although my father did work for the Navy as a civilian, he actually worked for the 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 chief of the Navy. I can't remember what the title is. So it was just sort of there, present in my upbringing. So I wasn't completely um, unfamiliar with it. Some of the best books I've read have had to do with war. And so that is the sort of the convergence of those interests and then, like I said, it was a very personal, compelling thing for me in the beginning. And then as I got more into it and looked into the physiology of the brain and what happens to soldiers exposed to multiple IED blasts and how traumatic brain injury contributes to post-traumatic stress. And so it, it led me into this, in, onto the medical side of mm-hmm. what was happening. And you and I have spoken in in other conversations about the toll on medical students and doctors as well um, and, and, and what kind of stress they endure because of what they do. Absolutely, yes. And um, my window into that in particular began even before I discovered this field. Um, we sadly my family have a family oncologist because I have two sisters and my mother all died of cancer and the same wonderful physician um, treated all of them and as I saw what he went through um, and the toll it took on him it just opened a window for me into understanding, oh my goodness, how difficult must this be for physicians, particularly oncologists, 
as they try to, um, you know, pull back the wave of cancer with chemo and radiation, with, you know, these different tools, nothing's perfect. Cancer, I don't know, um, The Emperor of All Maladies is a great book about yes. cancer and how it is just a mystery and, you know, continues to be a mystery that we've made progress, but it is still a medical challenge. And so having that personal experience with Dr. Haggerty, then when I got into my medical humanities coursework, I had a much better, I think, foundation for empathy for the physicians than a lot of folks. We, we often hear that physicians need to have more empathy for patients, and that is true. But in my experience, the opposite is also true because they are people under their white coats. They are not Superman or Superwoman or, I guess, Wonder Woman. Um, and they're, they're experiencing life and death, and they're seeing people at the worst of times, except for in childbirth, and that can be mostly um, in the best of times. But so that early personal experience um, really informed sort of how I developed um, the course I do at Stanford for the physicians, which is called Literature and Medicine. And when we could meet in person, again, it was a dinner and discussion series where we would have dinner. We would read um, a curated syllabus, basically, that I put together um, of poetry, short stories, essays, but as a catalyst for conversation around the challenges and the rewards as well of being physicians. You know, I'm, I'm thinking about this journey of, of, you know, you witnessing Dr. Haggerty and what Dr. Haggerty went through. And I'm trying to, I'm trying to place this in time. So, because how old were you? When, when did this feeling of empathy for the doctor and the, and noticing the toll it took on him, when did that strike you? How old were you? Well, I was actually 25 when I first met Dr. Haggerty, but honestly, the empathy piece, and I was quite frankly angry that he couldn't cure my sister and she died at 33. Um, and so the empathy didn't kick in until uh, my mother, who um, got sick after, and then um, seeing the wear and tear on him and seeing that his how he felt about our family and our family having to go through that again. I tell the story one night at the hospital, I got into the elevator and he he typically was never a hair out of place, clean white coat, very neatly dressed, very professional. And he was in the elevator just slumped to the side, all disheveled and his his briefcase was full of like medical journals. And I, I was like, and it was super late. Um, at that point, I, you know, I was staying overnight in the hospital and I said, oh my gosh, you're still here. And, um, and he just let this big sigh out and it just really, that image of him just really stuck with me because he basically said, my day's not over. And he kind of lifted up his, um, briefcase full of the, wasn't really, I mean, it wasn't shut cause I could see the, what he was reading mm -hmm. and this was you know, before most everything was on the internet. So, yeah, so right after that, in fact, I got a, a position at a medical school in Texas, um, partially because of this experience to want to sort of be on the 
front end of research related to cancer and also just sort of understanding to better understand how the medical system worked and clinical trials and all of that. So Mm -hmm. in that particular medical school had the medical humanities program that Mm -hmm. I was then able to pursue while I was working full time. Mm -hmm. And you mentioned that you've lost two sisters and a mother to cancer. And how many siblings in your whole family were there? Um, There are eight of us, six Mm -hmm. girls and two boys. Um, Mm -hmm. And so my, the Maria was my oldest sister and Natalie was the third oldest. So I have already outlived two of my sisters, both older. Um, Can you talk a little bit about the, well, I guess I'm trying to remember the children, your children, are which sister's biological children? So that was my sister, Maria. Uh, she was mm-hmm. the oldest. And um, in terms of our relationship, it was pretty funny because she was the oldest and I was the youngest. And we were complete opposites because <laughs> I was a little bit of a troublemaker and a tomboy. And she <laughs> was straight-A student, um, never got in trouble we even look completely different she has like Mm -hmm. strawberry blonde hair and blue eyes and darker skin dark hair and all I ever wanted to do was be outside and Mm -hmm. but she for some reason um, I think to try to protect me she just took me you know under her wing out of all of the the siblings and one day I was playing at the creek and and she came to get me for dinner and I didn't want to go home I was like seven and (laughs) there was a tree that had fallen across the creek. And so I was like, oh, I'll just run away because she won't follow me because she can't swim and she's terrified of water. And so I, um, this is going to make me cry. But I jumped on the tree and I ran across, but I fell in. I fell in the creek and it was so cold and I was like flailing around. And all of a sudden I heard her call my name and she had actually got run on the tree and laid down and was holding her hand out for me to grab and it and at that moment I you know I was young but I was like oh my goodness she uh wanted to help me more than she was afraid of the water which was amazing to me And so from that point on, we just sort of had this special bond. And so when I was with her for the cancer diagnosis, um, which was stage four when she found out, that's And how old was she at that point? She was 31. She was 31 when she first got diagnosed, she was already stage four? Yes, yes. It was, it had spread that rapidly because Kristen was only six months old at the time. And as we know, uh, about breast cancer, sometimes higher levels of estrogen help accelerate um, breast cancer. And obviously, when you're pregnant, you have a higher level of estrogen. And um, yeah, so Kristen was six months at the diagnosis, and Sean was two. And, and these are these are Maria's children, right? And mm-hmm. so, at that point with the diagnosis, all I could think of was her pulling me from that creek. 
Mm-hmm. And when you two were there at the diagnosis, um, did it take did it take a while for the impact to really hit? Oh, for the stage four, um, yeah, because we immediately. Um, went into, okay, how can we fix this mode? And um, at the time I was actually living in San Diego and was, um, there just seemed to be more, this was 1987, so there there were more experimental um, type treatments and um, I got, I tried to get her in with a specialist at UCLA, she was still in Maryland. So no, quite frankly, in the beginning, I think we were, I'm not sure that we were necessarily in denial, but it was more like, well, this can't happen, so we're going to fix it. It was more that mm-hmm. type of situation. And the initial plan actually was for her to bring Shauna Kristen and move to San Diego and stay with us because she was still working at the time and she was a single mom supporting these children. Oh, she was a single mom. I didn't realize that. Well, she was divorced. So, okay. yeah. And so um, that was the plan. And she came out the February after she, let's see, was, so she, two years. So it was a year and a half after diagnosis and things were looking better. She was on tamoxifen. So she came out to San Diego with the kids to do like a trial run and love San Diego, met all of her friends. And so the plan was then um, for her to go back, sell her house, wrap things up, and then move out with the kids. And then we'd all be together. Um, but sadly, she uh, didn't make it out to San Diego because the li- the cancer spread to her liver and then eventually her brain. And so... Um, I was back for that, and then I came to back out to San Diego with Sean and Kristen, and my mom came out to help for the first six months or so, thank goodness. And, um, yeah, so it wasn't really, even up until that February, she died in July, and the February before, things were looking up, and things were looking good, and, you know, they didn't use the word remission, but um, they thought they had gotten it all, and... So that sadly is the story of cancer often. Um, mm-hmm. So she she was making plans and she was back like cleaning, like fixing up her life in Maryland so that she could come out to San Diego, start her new life. And this part of the story where her children came out to San Diego to live with you is is something I want to kind of slow down and, and look at a little bit closer. So when when she wasn't doing well and and she realized that things weren't going to have a, a good outcome how is it that she made the decision about her children that you know with you <laughs> that's a great question <laughs> because everyone <laughs> in the family was like what she can't cook her house is a mess <laughs> she lives well i mean clear across you know country. so so when she was sick uh you guys it sounds like you were in the fight against cancer and that was consuming it was good you know positive power let's kill this thing but then things took a turn and so what what did the family understand were her plans for her kids before she announced what what would happen what did people think would happen to the children would they go with their dad or you know did your mom want to raise them 
Um, I believe that they assumed that my parents would um, raise them, but um, that was not an ideal situation. So Mar Maria knew what she wanted for the kids, and she knew, I mean, sort of half-jokingly, because she, she, poor thing, she could not play sports. I mean, she couldn't, <laughs> and she wanted to so badly, and um, she wanted her kids. She, she basically said, I don't want them to ever be picked last for a team. Um, you know, on the school playground back in the day when you would pick teams and um, sort of half jokingly, but she knew with me that they would just have a different kind of upbringing in terms of sports, in terms of education, in terms of adventure. And so that was something that she wanted for them. And she also gave me permission to not listen to anybody. She said, don't, everyone's going to give you advice. Mm -hmm. You just follow your heart and you'll know what's right. And that has helped me so much through the, mm. through the years, the, her confidence in me with that. Um, Did you, were you scared when, when she told you that she wanted you to raise them? You know, I, it's so funny. I think I was like, so young and so wanting 24 right yeah 25 I was 25 25 mm -hmm. so young and just so wanting her not to worry um and also probably <laughs> too young to know what I didn't know as well yeah and mm -hmm. so um I wouldn't say that I was scared um I just was more about hoping that she could go in peace knowing that the children would be loved and taken care of and um and so i yeah i can't say that i was scared because i feel like even in the process of the cancer and dealing with her physician i, I really kind of grew up a lot during that uh process as well um just facing things that i mean meeting with the lawyers just all of that things that you know, typically when you're 23, 24, 25, you're not necessarily doing. Mm -hmm. And there's also that idea, I don't know what you had faced as a family or individually prior to this happening, but I feel like there's there are these moments in our lives and these things that happen that make us grow up really fast or make us, it's sort of that coming of age and that realizing that things are actually a lot harder in, in many cases than we had known before. And I feel like I don't know if this was one of the earlier experiences you had of like kind of growing up and realizing that things don't turn out. Right. Even especially for somebody like Maria, who did everything right and, you know, followed all the rules and uh, was a, you know, a Phi Beta Kappa honor student, all of that, all of those things that, and just a super wonderful, amazing person. And um, yes, this idea that um, things are are random and things happen. Although I we we were um, my parents are first generation children of immigrants, and so we also grew up hearing stories of difficulty that my grandparents and parents faced um, because of you know being Sicilian and. So it wasn't ever that struggle was not part of the story. It was just 
for somebody so young um, Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. just having had a baby, you know. Mm -hmm. By the time your other sister, Natalie, and your mother had cancer, was your reaction any different or did anything change within you during those illnesses? I was more able to be in conversation with Dr. Haggerty about treatments and about alternatives and also a better understanding of hospice, um, which with my sister Maria, we fought against hospice a little bit. We were just like, no, because that's like giving up. And um, so having gone through that uh, process and um, kind of understanding the benefits of of that particular um, palliative care route, that definitely changed. Um, But it still kicks you in the gut no matter what in terms of the way people die from cancer. Mm-hmm. How, how do you think it was for your mom to, to lose her two daughters and then to get sick with it herself? Well, I, I don't know if it's fortunately, but fortunately my second sister died after my mom died. Mm-hmm. So, But I do know my mother just said, this isn't right. Parents are not supposed to bury their children. And Maria was her first, you know, and oldest. And I honestly think if it weren't for the kids, for all of us, Sean and Kristen gave us, you know, reason to move on and to um, live as fully as possible for them, but also for my sister who couldn't. So, um, and, I, and my mom did some adventurous things, like she came to Italy with me, which I'm not sure she would have done before, <laughs> this was be- before she got sick, um, mm-hmm. and came to the ocean, and, and the ocean used to, waves made her dizzy, um, but, she, <laughs> but she did um, did some fun stuff with us out in San Diego. So I, I do think um, having Sean and Kristen's um, lives in our hearts and in our hands and needing to you know, do the best for them really was a great sort of rallying factor for all of us. Yeah, and you know, for someone who hasn't been through this but has heard the story, and I've heard it before a little bit, but it's it used to, it's interesting for me because I used to, I used to really get stuck on that, that part of, wow, what is it like to have your aunt raise you as her own? But now, I don't know if I've gotten older or I just have, like I'm not there's nothing it's like of course right like I don't know it used to the story I would wonder what it was like for Kristen and Sean to have you as their mom and and their aunt and I I'm still curious about that and I'm still curious what that kind of melding of different relationships is like for you but I also really see how you are their mom yeah, you know, Sean actually was a huge help in this at the tender age of four because he, of course, I was Aunt Jackie um, at the time. Um, and so when they came 
to live with us in San Diego and started preschool where I worked. I worked at the University of San Diego and they were fabulous. They were amazing and supportive and they had just opened a preschool on campus. And so I was able to get both of the kids in. And um, so of course people in the preschool didn't know our story. They didn't, you know, and they would call me mom or to, you know, say to the kids, your mom's here or and so one day I just said to Sean, I said, what do you want me to do when people call me your mom? And he said, um, sorry, this always gets me. He said, tell them um, our old mommy's in heaven and you're our new mom. And that was how he made sense of it in his head, you know, that he had old and, and to this day they call Maria old mommy um, and um, and so I mean that little child set that framework then which helped me enormously and I think that was how he made sense of it um, you know they say children are closest to God and I really believe that and that was yeah. perfect um, example of it so yeah in terms of that and then um, one day after that, uh, I got to the preschool and he, he was on the other side of the room playing and he looked up and he just said, mom, and he came running toward me and hugged me. And so that day it just switched and I went from being Aunt Jackie to mom. Oh. So I give the kids all the credit for that because Sean came up with that um, you know, framework and yeah. it was, super amazing and just wise beyond his years <laughs> yeah and you have three children right so five years later um, after <laughs> becoming a mom um, then I gave birth to Troy the youngest and what was hysterical about that was I had never had a newborn right but right. many people that knew me didn't know that. They didn't, you know, they just, they didn't know the whole story. And so when I was having difficulty, a couple of my girlfriends were like, well, didn't you, what'd you do with Sean and Kristen? Like, why is this such a big deal? And um, so it was pretty funny. So, you know, having a newborn obviously is very different than a two-year-old and a four-year-old. So yeah. there was definitely a learning curve and he was an emergency C-section. And so there was a recovery process and it was quite the adventure. Um, and, and it was tough in the beginning because Sean said, um, so Sean was, eight when Troy was born eight or nine and he said I wish he had been a girl because then I'd still be the only boy and <laughs> and then he said things are never going to be the same and um so but fast forward to how many years later and Troy was Sean's best man at his wedding and they mm -hmm. the three of them are just uh thick as thieves they're just adorable to watch and um but yeah it was a little rough going even just for me physically um mm -hmm. in that and again my mom came out thank goodness to help with all of that transition all these years later 
you know, so many years later and they're launched. I mean, those kids are totally launched, right? Mm-hmm. They're in their mm-hmm. 30s and a little bit younger, right? Yeah, Sean's a dad himself. He's married and has a, <laughs> his little, literal mini-me, Declan, looks just like <laughs> I got them copy and paste t-shirts um, for, <laughs> for Father's Day because they look so alike. So cute. <laughs> Do you ever... Do you ever, so I wonder what it's like all these years later, is it, um, do you ever pause still when you think about them as your children or is it so, so what the story is now that you never even have to do that mental little, there's no mental hiccup that, oh, well, they were Maria's first. People would say to me, well, when are you going to have one of your own? And I was, I didn't, I never understood that because I was like, well, these are my own. And, and it, I, I always have felt like Maria and I co-mothered the kids because, man, I prayed to her a lot um, <laughs> <laughs> through the years. And so it was, yeah, it was never that they weren't in my heart in that way. And so the, the only thing I thought about when Declan was born was that, you know, Maria wouldn't have a chance to see him you know, her and future grandchildren. Um, but she, you know, I, she's always been part of our conversations and growing up we had a huge collage of pictures mm-hmm. of her and her with them. And the kids would say, did old mommy like the Redskins or did old mommy like Kentucky Fried Chicken? You know, as we would go through our, mm-hmm. our daily, whatever it is that we were doing. Was that, was that something that you welcomed or did that ever get hard for you? Oh, well, those kinds of questions were great. The tougher questions were, can we fly to heaven and cut mommy's cancer out and bring her back home? Um, When they were really little, I mean, those were some really tough conversations. And then at her funeral, Sean said, why is everybody crying? It's not mommy's fault, you know? And just the, you know, the, the viewpoint of a child and I had actually sought advice, great advice from a child psychiatrist in terms of, um, like, don't say she went to sleep, don't say she's going on a trip, all of those things, because that implies them coming back, because, mm-hmm. you know, children don't necessarily understand the concreteness of death. And he, he said, you know, yes, bring them to the funeral. They may not understand it at that time, but as they get older and look back, you know, they'll understand and it'll be a closure. Mm -hmm. So I was really thankful for that advice, Mm -hmm. you know, early on in terms of that. And, you know, I feel like I would be remiss if I didn't ask, and of course you don't have to answer this, but about your, your husband, because you're no longer with him and he was there for part of their, or all of their childhood. Is that right? Yes. So he, Let's see, we were married for 23 years and it got harder over time. And so the good news is it was an amicable divorce and the kids feel like everybody is sort of better off in terms of stress level and anxiety. Actually, when it Mm -hmm. first happened, my youngest was in high school and he said, mom, you're much less of a smother mother. And and I think that was just a, a good point um, of him experiencing me more relaxed and less anxious. <laughs> so yes, but he, you know, he, he was there and he 
said yes as well in the beginning, and I give him a lot of credit for that. Um, it just got really tougher over time. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So these days you work with people who have been in really difficult situations yet when you teach this class and you work with people in the medical field who are in really difficult situations and you overcame lots of family difficulty in terms of health and loss so how do you how what keeps you going uh, honestly the the energy created when in a room or now on zoom when people are able to feel um, that their experiences are they're not alone in their experience either hearing it from colleagues I typically particularly in the medical setting I always give my background since I'm not an MD so they understand where I'm coming from same with uh, the military and honestly and the the feedback that I have received from people people some of the younger physicians say that the reason they stayed at Stanford was because of the class and because they were able to build community and um, so really it's being able to do this amazing work and I don't even like to call it work because it is it's really um, it's it's really I feel very fortunate to be in a position mm-hmm. to provide space for people to hold on to humanities and arts I mean so many it, it's amazing the number of physicians who are also musicians that they took music lessons mm. there's a um, it's it's a um, learning music and learning medicine is the executive function of the brain so there, there's just a lot of similarities so during covid we've had these we call them stuck at home concerts and so we have mm-hmm. people playing music at home physicians medical students um, their families and it's just been because we were supposed to have this big symphony with 44 mm-hmm. physicians ready to go right before covid um so and that the the programs the classes the activities that we do are beneficial and and people are so grateful and they tell us and they tell the dean and they tell other people how how grateful they are for for that that permission and time and space to decompress Mm -hmm. and to to be back in touch with their creative side one of the physicians said she said i forgot how beautiful words can be you know because medical language is medical language right it's it's not the language of poetry or the language of literature and so that is really um just i'm energized every time i come off of anything a call or a concert is just um it's just um energizing in and of itself Mm -hmm. and i think that your your perspective on physicians and what they go through I think I think for a lot of people that people would understand what veterans have gone through and and how difficult and often traumatic their experience has been but I really think until I talked to you I hadn't considered what physicians go through so is there is there something you think most people should keep in mind when you know something you'd like them to know the average layperson like me about veterans and physicians that we can keep in mind to help us understand better? Sure. One of the things I talk about is how we put both professions sort of on a pedestal and we have 
a lot of times unrealistic expectations. Like for myself, Dr. Haggerty, I was so mad at him for not curing Maria, you know. Um, but we we put them on a, a bit of a pedestal, and then when they fail, actually one of the surgeons says, you know, we're either a hero or a zero. Like there's no in between. Mm -hmm. And so I think understanding, and they themselves are their worst critics, and they have such high expectations of themselves. And um, so, and they're in a system that is is not exactly, even though it's a system of healing, it can be very dehumanizing and crushing. And so just remembering that they are human beings underneath the white coat and that they have children and that they have grandmothers who have COVID and, um, you know, just understanding and asking them, how are you doing? And, and thanking them. I mean, I, it's so funny how many doctors tell me they're so grateful when they get a note or someone says, well, how are you, doc? You know. And then for the veterans, I will say um, on their behalf, they don't particularly like thank you for your service because um, as one student said, you know, what do you say? To, there's, that's not a conversation. That's just what do you say? You're welcome. And so if you're in a position where you're able to have a, a longer conversation with the vet, say, how was it? Where were you stationed? What motivated you to join that particular branch? just to, to have it be more of a conversation as opposed to a sentiment. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. It's like open-ended, there's room for them, right? To kind of tell you who they are. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Did you, did you ever talk to Dr. Haggerty again or did you ever reach any kind of resolution or closure with Dr. Haggerty emotionally? Oh, absolutely. So. Uh, so when my sister, Natalie, was diagnosed, so that was after Maria and mom, and the first time I saw him, he said, don't take this the wrong way, but I hoped I'd never see you again. And I said, <laughs> me too, Dr. Hackery, believe me. <laughs> but he, um, so, and he just, he just looked at me, he had the, like, the half glasses, and he just kind of looked at me over his half glasses, and he was just so sad and so full of because Natalie actually lived the shortest amount of time. She only lived 10 months, whereas my mom and Maria lived two years after diagnosis. And he, and he knew that, and he knew that at the moment, and I didn't know that he knew that. And then there's a poem called Those Winter Sundays. It's a poem about a young boy who doesn't appreciate his dad getting up every morning and making a fire to, to chase out the cold are the words in the poem. and. And by, 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 by the end of the poem, he, he has a better appreciation of his dad and what love really means. And so I sent that poem. To Dr. Haggerty after Natalie died as a way of saying, I'm sorry it was such a shit before and um, and I definitely went through this evolution of understanding did he did he let you know that he got it yes yeah he said oh I never thought you were brat I think that's what I said I think I said brat <laughs> which made me feel better um uh -huh. yeah. I know I mean Jackie, you're a really nice person. I think even when you're, when you've got a little fire, you're a really nice person. Do you, um, 
do you, you know, in the last moment or two we have remaining, do you, I know you're a spiritual person. I know that you grew up in a religious family. And I just wonder, do you have a sense of your lost family around you at all? You know, my grandmother used to say, they're not gone. They're in her Sicilian accent. They're not the gone. They're just in the next room. And, <laughs> and if you go to Sicily, they're, uh, the first time I went to Sicily, I saw these posters, what looked to me like political posters, because they had pictures and then words in Italian that I didn't understand. But what those were, were obituaries. And in Sicily, they post them publicly. And so I asked my friends there, I said, well, how long do they stay up? And they say, oh, they stay up until the weather takes them. And hmm. so I think, and I don't know if it's specifically Sicilian or... Um, what it is but there's this sense that your yes your family is always with you even though they're not physically here but they are with you and I truly believe that because they have uh, I've dreamt I've had conversations with my mother and my sister and my dreams particularly when I needed advice so um yes I believe that they're because love does not die I, I believe that love is an energy that continues where can people find your work or any you know what you've written or more out about you well currently probably if that was the case would be actually on the stanford um website and even if they just put my name in and then on this we have a the medical school has a blog and i've written i've written about my work and then i've written a a piece about my sister um, there and I, I haven't been able to focus as much as I would like on more writing and more publication okay. but that hopefully will be coming in the future yeah when you don't have all those irons on the fire you do <laughs> yeah. a lot and then you're also doing so much because of COVID right now too yes it's um yeah. it's a it's it's a uh, it's a I mean it's not even a it's a marathon sprint is the way one of the doctors uh, explained it because even now we are adjusting protocols and um, just trying to st stay up and ahead of everything. Thank you so much for taking time to share your story with me and you know for having this conversation. Well, thank you, Ronit. And I, I did want to say the poet's name is Robert Hayden. And ah, I yes. was going to find it because I'm going to have to post it. Yes, Those Winter Sundays. It's a fantastic poem. And it's also fantastic from a just from a literary standpoint, the devices he uses in the poem in terms of sound and um, repetition and just from a, like as a as a poem itself, but then also the message of the poem are both yeah. uh, fantastic. I look forward to reading. I'm going to post it on my Instagram for the podcast, and I'll also um, read it and share it because I think people will enjoy reading that. Thanks. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ronit. This has been so much fun. Thank you for listening to And Then Everything Changed. For more on this episode, photos, and other episodes you might like, please visit atecpodcast.com. You can connect with me and learn more about episodes on Facebook, 
Twitter, and Instagram also. Just search for my name, Ronit Plank, R-O-N-I-T-P-L-A-N-K, and you will find all the updates. If you like this podcast, please remember to subscribe and also rate and review so other people can find it. Thank you so much for listening.